Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of I Pledge Allegiance. This week, we have on Nathan and Diogo, the founders of Anchorage Digital. Anchorage is one of the largest crypto companies in the space. They started building custody services for crypto funds and crypto protocols in, I believe, 2017. And since then, they've come a really long way. They now have an enormous set of products and hundreds, if not thousands of customers. And chances are, if you're listening to this podcast, you've probably interacted with Anchorage in one way or another. Most folks who are listening have a pretty good sense of what Anchorage does and the products and services that they do. I think what has been less covered and what's more interesting is Nathan and Diego's themselves and their journey to building and scaling Anchorage from just them to hundreds of people and, and one of the leading institutions in crypto. So I think today we'll be going into that journey and hearing the path that they've had over the past five years. And, and hopefully there's some interesting tidbits, I think, for listeners. So with that said, welcome, Nathan and Diogo. Great to be here, Derek. Thanks so much for inviting us. Thank you for having us. So just to sort of jump right into it, I remember when I first met both of you in, I believe it was fall 2018, around when you guys had just finished raising an A. And a very important part of the story of Anchorage was that you both had known each other for, for many years, had worked together at two previous companies, Square and Docker, and had founded and sold a company to Docker before. And now you are working together on this new crypto-specific custodian called Anchorage. And it was just like a really compelling narrative and, and background. So I think that part of it really stood out from early on. I was wondering if you guys could talk a little bit more about how you guys collaborate and, and, and sort of how that gives you guys potentially an advantage in some ways. Yeah. So that, that's actually a lot to unpack. And to your point, I think one of the things that Chris Dixon said at the time was that there was perfect founder market fit here. And so two founders that are perfectly suited to tackle the challenge that they're setting themselves out to tackle, which is kind of unique. There's not a lot of other crypto companies that are founded by two security engineers, but there should be because security obviously is at the core for any institutional business that is based on private keys, which is what, what crypto businesses are. But yeah, there's a, there's a lot of story to cover. We should also cover the sale of the company, which uh, calling it a sale is a little bit of an exaggeration, but we should talk a little bit about what we did there that I thought was particularly interesting. And you're absolutely right. Nathan and I, at this point... I've been working every day for the past 13 years together. So it's been a long time. It started out in 2011, early 2011, when we joined Square very early on, then went on to, to Docker, where we joined together and were there for three years to then starting Anchorage in uh, late 2017. So it's quite a journey. And maybe I'll open the hostilities by saying, Lots of people ask us for advice, of course, on how to start new companies. And Nathan and I are pretty active angel investors at this point. And one of the biggest questions that people ask me, for which I have no idea how to answer, really, but it is, how do I find a good co-founder? <laughs> you know, a lot of things in business over the past 13 years we've done, and we've created, we have a set of opinions on how to do them and how we've done them right and how we've done them wrong. But we, I guess, never had to really tackle that particular challenge because the hardest part of starting the business, as far as I can see, is really finding somebody that you trust a thousand percent to start a business with and to dedicate yourselves to working together for decades to achieve goals. And that was just something that we were lucky enough to do very early on by joining Square the same week in, in 2011. So 
that's, I think, you know, the luckiest break that um, I've had on my uh, entrepreneurial journey was just uh, meeting the perfect co-founder on day one. Super helpful summary. Nathan, maybe to hear from you a little bit, could you talk about the journey from meeting Diogo at Square to creating something and selling it to Docker and how that saga unfolded? This is actually, I'm not clear on, on sort of how this went down at all. So really interested. Sure. Yeah. So, you know, it's a, it's a pretty interesting story. And like Diogo said, one of the biggest you know, kind of insecurities I have about going on a, going on a podcast like this, trying to give advice to other entrepreneurs is that generally the trend here is limited life experience plus generalization, which is the recipe for bad advice. So I guess my, my first broad-based disclaimer is not all this can possibly apply to you. There's many different ways to make things work. All we can really kind of do is, is share our story. Like Diogo mentioned, we were both fortunate enough to join Square very early on. So we were joined in what I would call the Craigslist days. By that, I mean the Square was there to help people sell each other stuff on on Craigslist and, and kind of accept credit cards. And we got to see it grow from about 40, 40-ish when we joined to 1,400 four years later. And in many ways, I don't know if we'd ever necessarily said this out loud, but almost feels like it was our business education in a sense. We got to see what a good company looks like, how a, a successful company can run. And there's a lot of counterintuitive things that come in there. One of kind of the biggest things I would say is just that like products and very, very good products can cover over a lot of organizational issues. And this is textbook knowledge in, in hindsight, but there's a lot of things that can happen wrong inside of a company. But if the product is good, then the company will have a real shot at, at continuing to succeed. And you know, every every company has its has its issues. Square had theirs, Docker had theirs, God knows we've had ours, ours at Anchorage as well. But that's that was a very interesting education for us. Even more importantly than that, I'd say it was the fact that Dior and I got to work together in that highly stressful, hyperscaling point of view and really got to understand each other, whether it was tech, tech opinions, security opinions, or business building opinions. And so it's almost like we're trained in the, in the same system, in a sense. And so we kind of had many projects over, over the years at Square where we, we worked together on them, built things together, and really just kind of used that as a way to, to get closer. And so by the time it came to start getting the itch to go out and do something beyond the realm of Square, there were a number of potential things to consider. We actually pretty deeply considered building a key management system, oddly enough, for open source key management for managing software authentication keys in a data center environment, not necessarily crypto. But, you know, just a general purpose, can you manage the password tokens, the API keys, the encryption keys, any of those kinds of things that are within a data center? Looked at potentially raising money from that. Diogo had a number of uh, relationships with some, some venture capitalists at the time and so kind of looked at that. But I would say just for whatever reason, didn't quite get enough conviction that that was the right idea, the right time, the right market, whatever the case may be, but discovered this technology called Docker. And the interesting thing about Docker was it was going to be this opportunity for us to continue to work together, continue to grow in, in, in our own relationship, but particularly give ourselves some more skills. Square was a retail-focused company. 
And when you look at Docker and you look at kind of what our background was, we had this hunch that we would eventually have to start a security company together. And if you have to start a security company, then you want to be good at marketing. You want to be good at enterprise sales. You want to be good at customer support. All functions and disciplines that Square hadn't really had. And so we didn't really feel like we necessarily had a clear understanding of what that looked like. And so it kind of made sense to join Docker, learn a bunch about that, and be part of a highly skilled technology build. Docker was going to be very successful. And we had a lot of conviction that it was going to be very successful. So we spent several years there, and the the thesis kind of worked. We got to work very closely with the marketing team, very closely with the sales team, understand internally what that had looked like. And so in many ways, Docker became a, a, another place for us to learn more about how to run how to run companies and run them well. And so when it came time around 2017 for us to look at, okay, it's maybe time to move on. Crypto obviously got very popular at that point. We had this kind of wealth of experience that we'd learned from being at great companies, but also seven, eight years of working together that we had gone there. In terms of the company sale, it wasn't strictly speaking a company sale. It was more of a joint hiring arrangement, uh, which is to say Diogo and I actually applied to Docker simultaneously and said, hey, the package here is that you can hire both of us or neither. And so we joined kind of as a package deal, if you will, to give them a, a security team, which at the time they they very much needed a lot of reasons in the market that needed a security team. And so we came in as kind of a package deal. So strictly speaking, not quite an acquisition, more of a unincorporated talent acquisition, if you will. Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting one, by the way, because once you have experience in Silicon Valley, and especially once you, you start running a company, you realize that there's all these aqua hires that you do that look like acquisitions from the outside, but they're in many cases, either investors get their money back or not at all. And all the equity that is used in the purchase of the company effectively goes as retention package for the employees that are about to join the acquire. And so that's kind of an interesting, very common model. But it's also interesting to understand that when people are going to market and trying to find new roles and new jobs, they don't realize the pricing power that they have. And that there's absolutely no difference between two people that have worked together for a long time and that have a specific skill set that a company needs and two people that have created a company that was unsuccessful or didn't really have much success and now are out in the market to find an acquire. There's no difference between those two situations. In fact, the former situation is easier from an aqua hire perspective because there's no baggage, there's no company to shut down, there's nothing else. This is a pure version of uh, the purest form of aqua hire. And so the way that I kind of describe that transition to Docker is kind of like it's two for the price of 20 type situation. It is an aqua hire. What you're buying is the fact that these two people with this skill set have been working together for many years and have built things that have scaled and you want this kind of talent. So it's exactly the same as you'd be valuing an echo hire in the traditional sense. So it's kind of interesting how you end up learning these these kinds of things by being out of Silicon Valley that are non-obvious from the outside at all. No, I think that's a really eloquent way of, of describing the arrangement. And is this something you guys have seen commonly from maybe peers or, or at other companies or just like around tech broadly? Like how, how often does this happen in terms of two people joining as, as a contract? Yeah. So from a point of view of aqua hires, they happen every day, all day long. The point of view of people banding together and selling themselves as an aqua hire, even though they haven't actually attempted to accomplish something very specific as as a startup or trying to build a product, I think that's a lot more uncommon. But I think the recognition that those two things are virtually the, the same thing when it comes to acquisitions that don't actually aren't for the roadmap, aren't for the product, then, then you realize that it should be a lot more common than it is. But no, it's the answer is it's not very common at all. 
And frankly, why did you guys have such a high degree of conviction of working with each other? Like, did you just enjoy day-to-day interactions? Did you find your specific technical skills as complementary? Maybe it was both. Like, it's, again, it's not typical. So I'm curious what the motivation was. Well, for myself, obviously, always two versions here. For myself, it was, I felt like Nathan and I were very aligned in many ways. Interests, of course, security, we both worked on it. From a perspective of actually ambition in terms of career, I think both of us were attracted to Silicon Valley because we wanted to be part of the fast growth startup and wanted to create our own startup and be founders. And then finally, I think we were aligned on values. I think it's kind of interesting to think that somebody from Portugal and somebody from Indiana actually have a set of shared values, but the reality is that it is absolutely true. Family orientation, the way that we think about the world, this rational instincts, um, a little bit contrarian, and just different point of view coming to Silicon Valley. I think coming from, from the Midwest or coming from Portugal allows you to look into San Francisco for what it is from the outside with a little bit of perspective. And I think both of us had perspective. So I think those three things were the core characteristics that really pushed us, in my view, to really want to work together. And again, finding a, a, a co-founder is the single most important thing that you can do in a company. And by the way, top three, if not top two reasons why companies fail, right, is founder and finding. And so that's obviously like if you want a startup to be successful, then maybe you should take care of uh, one of the top two reasons why companies fail up front. But I think that was, that, was, that was mainly it. And then we knew we wanted to work together. And our bat now, by the way, was to create a company, was to start a company instead of uh, joining Docker. So it is truthful to say that we were a unit. We were a package deal. We were an aqua hire because what we would actually would have done otherwise would have been to take money and to take a term sheet and, and, and start a business on our own. And so that's that's the thought process behind it. And less dilution. <laughs> <laughs> a lot less dilution, yes. <laughs> exactly. Before getting into 2017 and, and sort of the entry of the, into the crypto world, like, just curious, what do you guys think of Square and I guess you could call it Block and maybe more specifically, like, would you, what do you think of Jack and sort of his journey with crypto over the years? I think that one of the one of the things that was very nice about being at Square, especially kind of in the early days, was that it was it was inherently very entrepreneurial. I think even early on there, it was quite obvious from Jack and I'd also add in Keith there. Keith Raboy was a was an early COO of Square. So they built a very entrepreneurial culture internally to Square whether it was kind of the business teams or even some of the engineering teams, the whole vibe of the place was to be very entrepreneurial. And there was a lot of overall structure that was very interesting and educational to learn from. Jack and Keith, obviously very, very different people. Keith, very focused on operational excellence, living by the metrics, being very careful and thoughtful about how to grow and and grow fast. And then Jack, kind of visionary on the product side, really focused on this idea that he would always call editing. I think they they actually went as far as to call the product managers at Square product editors. And so that just as an idea of you you cut you cut whatever it is doing down to its essence, so that you can have it be the strongest version of itself. This was a really interesting thing to learn in terms of the the crypto journey and kind of the whole place that that Square is going. I think easiest to say is fundamentally bullish, long-term bullish. I'm still a square or I guess block hodler and going to continue to do so because I think that there's 
not really any end to the to the headroom of that company. And it's it's got a lot of growth they can do for a long time. I think adding crypto in there has been huge for Block, but then also just huge for the, the crypto industry itself. And especially because they're so focused on Bitcoin, it's kind of wonderful for the space. And so I'm, I'm very bullish on them and, and looking forward to continuing to see it grow. Jack was somewhat early to Bitcoin. We had experimental stuff going on inside Square with Bitcoin. Even as early as, man, it must have been 2013, 2014, Diogo, maybe you know better. But so there was there was kind of early indications that that would be something that uh, Square would get into eventually. Some of the early stuff didn't necessarily work out. This is nature of business. Uh, like being early is indistinguishable from being wrong. But still, nevertheless, there was experimentation there. So absolutely unsurprising that Bitcoin would actually get integrated in a big way once it got big enough. And so uh, very much rooting for rooting for that. And Jack and Keith, basically anything they touch turns to gold. And so I think they'll they'll continue to do well. And in many ways, very grateful for the things we got to learn from being in in organizations that they were operating. Yeah, it's, it's actually interesting. But obviously, we, we when we joined it was very early. And so we got to interact with Jack quite a bit. There's like very small rooms and, and the office wasn't that large, right? So everybody was in eyesight of, uh, of everybody else. But well, one thing that I noticed and that I kind of appreciate now is there's lots of things that you do as a founder of a company that are non-obvious if you have never actually been in the role. And I think it was interesting to see Jack's personality change across time and specifically the fact that it became more and more careful about the things that he said and them not being wrongly interpreted. And in meetings, you know, you can choir and choir as the years went on. So you saw the transition at that point. Remember that when he created Square, it was very early on, very freshly from uh, having been um, let go from Twitter, right? And all of that story back then. And so it was very clear that was somebody with a chip on his shoulder, really putting an effort to this opportunity, going extremely well. And you, you saw the evolution of, of Jack as the CEO. And I think for, for us now is absolutely fascinating to compare and contrast what I thought about some things that he said or some things that he that he did or some decisions that were made that you don't really understand as an employee, but that now with the benefit of hindsight and having gone through them, you, you appreciate them. You appreciate them. You appreciate the courage that he had. You appreciate the fact that he either tried them and he failed or the fact that he actually tried them and he succeeded. And there's always incredibly hard to do cultural shifts to impose things on on the company that are not popular, but that are ultimately better for the business. And those are the places where I think it really shines on my memory of what he's done and what he did at Square when we were there. And, and now the experience of running Anchorage. When you guys left Square and Docker, how big were those companies? What, what series had they raised? Yeah, so it was Series A for both Square and Docker. I believe Docker was Series A when we joined too, or it was either Series A or Series B. But Square was around 40 people when we joined. When we left, it was around 1,200. And when we joined Docker, it was around 60, 70 people. And when we left, it was around 300, 400, if I recall correctly. So those effectively the journeys. And it was four years at Square, and it was uh, three years at Docker. Got it. Super interesting. People today look at Jack on Twitter and Keith on Twitter, and you couldn't have more contrasting at least Twitter personas. I think it's fun to remember that that was a team early on and yeah, it must have been a great experience. Yeah, and that they worked together and they worked together very well, right? No, I think to me, it just communicates that there's such a thing as a Twitter persona and what Twitter makes you want to be if the reach is the goal. And so, you know, you have, uh, if you're an investor, I think obviously 
reach is incredibly important. And I think for Jack, reach right now is, is to take a given, right? And he doesn't require really reach. So I do think that you, you, will, you would, of course, see those two personas kind of like diverge in terms of uh, what their Twitter output is. What, what's your guys' take on crypto Twitter and, and maybe like how you guys use Twitter overall? I think it's a little different you guys are like an institutional facing company, not a consumer one necessarily. So from an information gathering perspective, I think we'd all agree and all of your listeners would agree that Twitter is still a big source of information. There's a lot of stats and there's a lot of noise, but if you follow the right people, they actually build out in the open, especially the protocols, right? Ultimately, it's all about the protocols and the companies that are building really cool stuff. And the majority of them build out in the open. And so you get access to real time information. That just would be incredibly hard in any other kind of business. And so it's very important from that side, the consumption and understanding and keeping your uh, fingers to the pulse of crypto. In terms of participation, I think you're absolutely right. For us, we're a little bit more muted, both maybe in terms of personality, but also specifically because we are an institutional business and uh, there's no big advantage of having kind of like a retail presence or really having very spicy takes, right? Spicy takes just don't benefit a company that is uh, working in a very regulated environment in a way that it benefits personalities that depend on visibility and retweets to actually, regardless of whether they're good or bad, to really get their message out there. So I think that also communicates a little bit of our social media strategy and our more muted personas. Yeah, I think one of the one of the things I think about with Twitter is that there's this uh, meme that so much of crypto happens on crypto Twitter. And it's it's a meme, but it's also actually true. And so at some level, you must interact with it just to understand kind of what's going on, what's in the zeitgeist. I do hope that over time, crypto ends up with more, I don't know how to put this other than like kind of solid intellectual footing. And just kind of the, the, it's like the, the flavor of the week that we have in crypto right now ends up being the thing that dominates what's going on in everyone's minds. And so you see things like, just as an example, the Silvergate bank run, that's almost entirely driven by Twitter itself with real, real consequences. There wasn't inherently something wrong with Silvergate. Nevertheless, the Twitter-induced bank run cascaded into like a, a real, real issue for Silvergate. And so you have to be wise and, and prudent about what's going on Twitter, being aware of what's happening there. And there's, there, there's no substitute for that. But it's also kind of a, a general statement on where Twitter and the crypto industry is right now, that it's really driven by driven by stories, driven by narratives. And I think there's there's room for more structure to the intellectual thought that's going on within the, the crypto zeitgeist. We're a little too dependent on Twitter right now in a way that, you know, I think as the as the asset class matures, as the industry matures there might be more solid footing than we can go on than just kind of what comes from Twitter. But Twitter is also what makes it exciting, what makes it fun, what makes it interesting. And so that that dynamism is also one of the fun parts about it. So I wouldn't necessarily decry it in any way or, or, or talk down on it. But I think the asset class over time, you should expect that more than just kind of what people say on Twitter ends up driving what happens. I think those are very healthy, mentally balanced perspectives on, on crypto Twitter. Moving on a little bit into the fun stuff, the exciting stuff. So if I recall correctly, you guys, I believe it was 2017, started to work with some crypto funds and, and, and were sort of consulting and, and helping out with them on a maybe ad hoc basis. Could you talk a little bit about those early days and some of the work you did? Yeah. So 
Actually, it represents the the story of Anchorage, um, but but he really started out by filling a need. The company starts because we see this need. All these institutional investors, crypto investors, that are incredibly sophisticated investors, are not, let's say, so sophisticated when it came to private key management and custody. So we're seeing these things happening. People are asking us for help, asking us to consult for them and to help solve these problems. And they realize that, oh, actually, this is a real business. And it's not only real business, it's a real business in which we have a major competitive advantage. We have built key management systems, both at Docker, at Square, in our pasts, in, in our careers. So we know exactly how to do this, how to protect private keys that are worth hundreds of billions of dollars. And so in, in, in a little bit, it goes back to this perfect founder market fit situation. And so that's that's kind of, kind of how it started originally, was out of need. And then from the moment on, everything that we've built from that moment on was, was also from need. We start solving these technical problems for these institutions, and then they start coming to us and saying, hey, I, I love this custody solution. But wouldn't it be fantastic if me as a registered investor advisor that have to meet this uh, rule, this SEC rule, that says that I have to custody with a third-party qualified custodian, wouldn't it be great if you were regulated and fit that need? And so that's what got us on the path of being regulated. Or wouldn't it be great if we could do custody but also stay from the platform? Wouldn't it be great if we could actually buy and sell through you so we don't have to have any other relationships with any other third parties that we might not trust? Wouldn't it be great if we could do governance decisions? Wouldn't it be great if we could so on and on and on? And so it was really, it has always been out of client's need. Every time we build a product, there is a list of clients on the waiting list for which we built the product for and with. And so we always know that there's going to be product market fit on the other side of this. It's hard to judge, obviously, like full impact and full market sizing, but there's always specific clients on the other side to, to then inform us on how to build these products, even from the, the start of the company from day one up until today. And so that's that's been something very interesting. It's less of one of those companies where you build it and they will come. It is more of one of those companies where they come to you with problems and you work with them on the solution and then you turn around and make it a product. And sequence-wise, what did that look like? Was it like after five to, to six customers, you're like, okay, we have enough to go out and raise a seed? Was it after one? Yeah. Could you walk me through a little bit more specifically, like totally. I think the period was about seven months, and I think the thing that it accelerated was at the time we were in the ICO boom, and so the amount of investments that were happening were starting to really pick up, and we were really in the beginning of that. In fact, our first fundraising was timed almost perfectly because we raised at the end of uh, 2017, and then if you recall, 2018, early 2018 was um, the beginning of a, a pretty long two-year bear market. So that was kind of like almost perfectly, perfectly timed. And so it was really in that beginning of 2017, early 2017, until we started the company in uh, in October, that we were consulting for these funds. They were reaching out more and more. And so it took us a while to kind of like validate the market, validate the size. We started taking meetings early on around, you know, July or August and really validating the, these markets um, invalidating what the product would be. And then we really kind of like hit the ground running once we, we decided to jump. But it took a little bit longer. I mean, in hindsight, it always takes a little bit longer, but it, it took a little bit longer than it should have. I think it would have been great if we had started in the beginning of 2017 to really capture clients during that bull run. Because during that bull run, we were just fundraising. We didn't really have a product. We had nobody to onboard. And so we really only started onboarding clients in late 2018 and then beginning 2019. And of course, we benefited from every other bull run from that moment on, but we didn't quite make it to the 20, 2017 one. That's potentially, honestly, a blessing in disguise, right? Like a lot of the most active participants that are taking on the most risk in these at the top of the bull markets, maybe they, they might not be around in a few years. And 
acquiring customers in a bear market, of course, is harder, but at least those people are more likely to be around in the long run. And again, not saying it's easier or more fun, but perhaps a, a blessing in disguise to have fewer customers in a bear market, but really be able to focus on them. Oh, 100%. And I think crypto is one of those businesses where it's kind of hard to introspect from the outside and realizing that it gives you a little bit of a 10x MBA in business because the volatility is so large that it becomes extremely hard to have... You, you become extremely good at making decisions around pricing and business models and unit economics and what works and what doesn't work because you're constantly faced with today a product is extremely profitable and tomorrow a product this product is, is losing money just out of a spanning three months it completely changes the profile of these products um, when you're kind of like riding a market like this and so that's a pretty fascinating thing in terms of difficulty it really increases the difficulty pretty significantly of running uh, running a business just the fact that everything is so volatile to the point where you know some of these ecosystems no longer exist. Some of these products just simply disappear. There are a lot of fly-by-night investors that make it extremely profitable for certain types of product to happen and to exist, but only for a very short duration of time. And so I've never really seen another business with this type of profile that is so fast moving and so hard to really maintain a long-term business that is dependent on these high volatile variations. Just diving a little deeper into how the product and, and how the company has evolved I remember in 2018, myself and Bart, my partner at the time, we got the Anchorage product demo and, and Bart was like, this is the best product demo I've ever seen. We have to start using this for custody. And, and obviously that's what eventually led to an investment. But since you guys heard with this amazing product of, of custody, there's so many other areas you guys have expanded to. I'm not even going to list all of them, but there's just like an enormous number of things that customers of Anchorage can now use. You guys can charge different rates for a lot of these different services. How do you guys think about the value chain of these services and what customer behavior is most important for you guys? What do you guys see as like the long-term critical functions to, to own? Wow. It's a, uh, there's, <laughs> there's so much depth to the, to the question. It's kind of hard to go into. I think one way that we in some ways think about it is, you know, going back to the, the square analogy, which is where we learned so much about the importance of great product. In 2018, I would say we we came out with the product and that demo you talked about, you and you and Bart seeing, it was very contrarian. Dio talked about us both being kind of contrarian thinkers. We wanted to take a, a fundamentally different approach to the way that crypto custody happened, crypto custody was built. And the the hunch there was that a, a fundamentally better model for authentication, key storage, flexibility of custody of digital assets would be the the starting point of something that you would kind of be able to layer services on over time. So when you talk about, you know, all these services that we've rolled out over the past several years, in some ways, the long story short is that it worked. The The fundamental different approach to, to custody, to authentication has earned us the right in some ways to be able to build these additional services like staking, like trading. And the way that those services get delivered are so much better because of the fact that we have this highly, highly flexible custody system. And so in many ways, you look at the custody system, and it's still the heart of the product suite. And it's funny, because in traditional finance, custody is the sleepiest, most boring business kind of imaginable within the whole value chain stack. And our long term bet for the company is that's not going to be the case in the digital asset asset class that custody is going to end up being central because of the fact that you have like 
things like staking and participation and kind of active use of the assets, that those assets are going to want to be held in a, a regulated, safe reliable system that allows you to do stuff with them instead of just having them sit there inert. But they really almost start to look like software attestations to do things in a distributed network, not just kind of an investment asset that, that sits inert. And so that kind of baseline custody remains central to us. And so when, we, when you ask the question like, hey, what user behavior matters the most to us, the guiding North Star remains do clients hold their assets with us? And when they need to move them off platform, what is the behavior that is causing them to have to move it off platform? Is it because they want to go participate in DeFi? Maybe they ought to be able to participate in DeFi from Anchorage. Is it because they have to trade? Maybe they ought to be able to trade from Anchorage. Is it because they want to use it as as collateral for a, for a loan they get somewhere? Maybe that, maybe that should be available within Anchorage. Maybe they should be able to settle within Anchorage. And so we still kind of fundamental model is are they holding assets with Anchorage and any of the other things they want to do, are they able to do that from within the Anchorage platform? So that remains central to our, our thinking and kind of our core KPIs and our core behaviors still kind of center around, are we the long-term holder of the assets for them? If we are, we believe that puts us in a deep relationship of trust and uh, really kind of in a fiduciary responsibility with our clients that will, will lead to being able to build deeper and deeper relationships with us. The way we like to think about it is, you know, the traditional custodians, most of them have been here for hundreds of years. And that's because of really the compounding value of trust over time. And so that's what we want to continue to earn over the next several decades with our clients is that ability to be this very long-term oriented partner for all things digital assets. Totally makes sense. I think Anchorage is definitely a company that benefits from that Lindy effect. The longer you've been around, mm-hmm. the longer you've been without major exploits or hacks or whatever, the more trust that people have. Polar opposite of whatever consumer company that the people have created recently. I guess diving, Nathan, really appreciate the answer. It's just like talking about custody as the key starting point and really still to this day remains the most important thing because once there are assets on the platform, from sheer inertia, users are not users have to make an active choice to move them off platform. And if they do move them out platform, it's like, okay, how do we allow them to do those things from from within our suite of services directly? So they don't have to, to move it off platform. And my question is, there's all these different services you guys have launched in the last five years, such as staking and trading and governance and, and many others. How do you look at the build versus buy decision? How do you guys think about, should we build this skill set entirely in-house? Should we partner maybe a rev share or something with another service provider, another company? Should we buy a team that's really good at this? How do you guys think about that set of decisions? Yeah, so if you put it on the, so there's build, there's buy, and there's partner. Let's uh, use those three for, for big buckets. Historically, at Anchorage, all of our buys were aqua hires. We've never really done a product aqua hire. So let's say that we don't really buy products. And we can talk about why. So the majority of the things that we do is are, are built. Whenever it's the core, whenever it's strategic, whenever we need to own, essentially if it touches private keys that can actually cause asset loss and value loss, then it needs to be owned by, the, by us. It needs to be built by us. And that makes sense because our technology is very unique. No, not just the technology, the way that we do private key custody, storage, safekeeping, et cetera. That's very unique. 
but also because the way that we've built our infrastructure is also hard to kind of like plug and play with a company that you just acquire. If you acquire a company that does something, their custody systems are going to be different. They're not going to be at the same level of quality as the ones that we have internally. And it's going to be effectively almost a full rebuild to really be able to integrate them. And then further on that one, by the way, it's it's kind of interesting, but we're still the only company that I know of that effectively uses Chromebooks for everyone. So we deeply care about security and corporate security is actually the, the main way in which companies get hacked. So we are at a security profile, which is above and beyond what everybody else has just from the fact that we actually run Chromebooks internally and have a very tightly knit corporate security system that just eliminates a lot of surface of attack. And that also means that it's harder for us to kind of like acquire these other companies that are big because it's a big culture shock. When engineers uh, are, are asked to um, give up their MacBooks uh, for a Chromebook, it's, uh, it's really only from their cold dead hands that they're willing to, to give up. And so Anchorage has done it with uh, hundreds and hundreds of people, but because it's part of the culture that the safety of the assets of our clients are the single most important thing that we can do. So it's worth for us to go through all of the hoops that are necessary for us to do so. And this is one of them. So that's, that makes it very hard for us to really do product acquisitions or really aqua hires that are very large, say more than 10% of the number of people that we really have at Anchorage. So we haven't really done any any of those. And the primary instinct here is that we we build all of the core. Now there's also partner. So there are things in which we partner with other folks for. So say staking providers are a great example of that. Because if you realize depending on the network of course, there's networks that have tombstoning, slashing, etc. But depending on the network, a staking provider if the keys are being delegated from the safety of custody of Anchorage, then all of a sudden the risk is actually very little. It's a risk of uh, loss of of the the yield of the of the gains that you're getting from staking, which is easy for us to work through, ensure, or really defend against, or really give discounts around custody and how much people pay for custody or what have you. Right. So it's in terms of loss, it's not true loss of principle. It's just loss of gain, and usually for a very little amount of time. So we do deep due diligence on these partners, but we feel like that's not strategic enough for us to own in all of these sacred providers. Now, there's obviously some assets for which we say, oh no, we need to own this one either because they're not willing to share with the staking providers the yield that it generates, or because it's so technically complex and has so much impact on the actual clients, say that there's actually loss of principle, then in that case, we should run it ourselves. But in that case, specifically, staking is a great example of something that would be very much in the category of partnership. It's whatever it's more cost-effective. And is it worth our engineering time to build staking for the nth crypto asset or actually build custody for another layer one, right? Arguably, custody for another layer one are the thing that is the most unique in that we're uniquely capable of doing and that nobody really else can do from a federally chartered bank. And so let's focus on doing that and then you know, either partner or at some point in the future, run our own node. But the priority is clear that uh, staking comes first. So in terms of um, opportunity cost, it's, it's another thought there that, that staking is a great example of something for which it, it might be better to partner than to just uh, run it on our own. In terms of teams that Anchorage has historically acquired or maybe taking a serious look at, like what are some of the things that set teams apart in terms of ones you that are desirable purchasing targets versus ones that, that maybe are, are less so? Sure, I can I can talk about this a little bit. I mean, I think the way we've mainly looked at it was is this a net new skill category addition? So can we can we bring in a team that is a, a team that's working together that has a categorical skill set that the, the team doesn't have yet that we think that we need to bring in. An example of this is the Merkle team. We actually did a talent acquisition of that team pretty early on. 
to say, hey, we need to do something beyond just custody. We need to kind of break the seal on another business line within Anchorage. And they came in and kind of helped us build out all things related to trading. It wasn't just them that did trading. We, we still needed to kind of augment that with additional hires. For example, brought in a kind of a head of brokerage to to run that operation. So that was that was one example. The other example we had was we had this we had this hunch that we could build out a talent market within uh, within Portugal, and so we brought in a team there, Fide, that helped us bootstrap hiring an engineering team out of Portugal. Obviously, Diogo's from Portugal, and so it made a lot of sense for us to for us to for us to bring them in. And so those were the kind of the two that I would call formal acquisitions of teams. And then there's been others. One other that I would say was really just a a concerted hiring effort out of a particular place where we thought that we could bring in a lot of a lot of particular talent. That was all things around banking. As we looked to become a, become a national bank, which we haven't talked about yet, we needed a lot of focused talent on how to run and operate a nationally chartered bank and ended up really with, that looked less like a talent acquisition, more like kind of a, a concerted hiring effort to bring in a specific set of folks. And we had, we had good success there with particularly hiring out of, a, out of a particular organization that ended up really bootstrapping our ability to successfully run the, the banking operations and have that really be kind of a, a fruitful endeavor for us because there's a lot of very specific things that need to happen in order to run a banking institution that we just didn't have the, we didn't have the DNA for it yet. And so we needed to wholesale bring in a team in that way. Banking is certainly a very hot topic right now in crypto, I think for the past few months and also just tech more broadly. Curious if you guys have any thoughts you're able to share on this idea that regulators are systematically going after and cutting off access to fiat rails in the US. Like I think that's one of the prevailing narratives in terms of crypto banking at the moment. So on on our side, we've always we've always wanted to be a the, the technical word for, word for it is a trust. And so when you think of traditional banking, you've got what I think most people think of as a bank is a deposit-taking institution. It holds your dollars, it lends them out, and basically holds fiat currency. We've never necessarily wanted to be that kind of a bank. In our sense, our goal has always been to be a custodian, so full reserve, regulated institution that doesn't necessarily suffer from the same kinds of inherent risks that traditional banks do. Traditional banks, if they're taking deposits and they're lending them out, Obviously, they're they're subject to a potential bank run, and the kind of inherent fact that they're subject to bank runs means that they must be extremely regulated. And so, when you look at kind of the the federal and state regulators that oversee banks, it kind of makes sense because the very definition of your business is inherently risky. And so, I wouldn't at all say that anything less than pretty strict regulation there is kind of necessary because of the the inherent risks in that in that business model. And so from from our side, we're not necessarily in that category. We do have a national bank. The national bank is there to be a regulated, trusted, bankruptcy remote entity that allows, say, institutional investors and crypto protocols, anybody who kind of wants to use the bank, can have the comfort of knowing that it's overseen by a federal regulator, pretty strict guidelines that we need to we need to operate under. But that's really been kind of our our experience is that we've we've been started out with a, a state regulated entity, transferred that into a into a national entity, and we've been we've been working very closely with them. 
our interactions with federal regulators, their federal banking regulators has been, I'd say, uh, productive, consistently productive throughout the lifetime of our charter. And I would characterize it as kind of a, a joint learning experience in that we're understanding more and more over time about what it means to be federally regulated. Our regulators are getting deeper and deeper understanding of, of crypto. And so we've, we've found that relationship to be pretty constructive over time. And so that's been our experience so far. Got it. And thanks for clarifying the difference between maybe the typical banking model that, that people think of and, and the trust structure that, that's, that's being done here. Going back, I think, into the more product side of things, one of the major company-wide like strategy decisions is what do we actually support from a custody side, right? There's endless options in crypto from L1s to L2s to, to app chains to NFTs. And, and each one of these has different environments, technically different, different lead times, different skill sets. It's really like placing a venture bet as, as a company in terms of where do we allocate resources and which ecosystems are we bullish on? So I'm curious how you guys think about it and how, you, how historically the company has prioritized. Yeah. So th this is an interesting one where the answer is actually obvious. But before I answer it, it's absolutely true the way that they're describing it, that in a way, Anchorage is a venture capital firm, except that instead of investing capital into these early stage projects, what we do instead is we invest capital through our engineers. It is engineering time that we're dedicating for these protocols to be supported, for custody, for staking, for governance, et cetera, for all of these other features that we're investing into these protocols. And so our upfront cost is engineering is, instead of actual giving capital for, for these protocols. And so in that sense, you're absolutely right. And it is a venture model because we make several bets. And then based on how the layer ones make, we make more money or less money, given that our base model is assets under custody or percentage of staked gains or what have you. So it's, it really is aligned with the upside and the downside of these protocols. So we are a venture firm in that sense, in, in the sense that we have to make bets on protocols and make money or not make money based on whether we're correct or not. On the other side of this, it's actually ends up being easier for us to prioritize which projects and which ecosystems and communities support because we actually have a very large customer base at this point. And so what we do and what we have is this really cool tool to prioritize, which is how many of our clients have invested in this protocol and thus on day one, how many assets in our custody are we going to get? How much staking are we going to get? And so actually that is our, the, the biggest signal for us is of our customer base, how many of them have invested in this and thus how many deposits we have that are effectively guaranteed or easy to get from them. And then second, how many new clients will we get? And then third, what are the characteristics of the protocol from a revenue generating perspective? Does it stake? Is it high yields? Is it very hard to support and thus it will command a premium? And obviously then you kind of like go down the other rest of the list of, is it technically sound? Is it security or not a security? This we have this asset support framework that we run through to kind of like make sure that we can support it and kind of like more of a checklist analysis of it. But really the prioritization comes from how many of our current clients have it and are excited to, to custody it. What is the market cap of the asset and the characteristics of revenue and how many new clients will it actually give us? So in that sense, very easy to uh, prioritize. And in that, in that sense, also very unlike traditional VCs where they don't really have this and they don't want to talk about the protocol with other venture capitalists because they want to end the deal and obviously have the largest percentage of ownership possible, right? And so we don't, we don't have that issue. I think one thing I'm really curious about is, I'm sure you guys work with a ton of different crypto protocols on the engineering side, on the integration side, like there's a, a lot that needs to be done together. And 
I'm sure you've had a whole spectrum of experiences in terms of just communicating with these teams, working with them. I'm curious if there's any, like maybe without name specifics, but like interesting tidbits or, or stories or tips you would have for partners working with you guys in terms of having smooth experiences. The biggest one is come early, talk to us early. And we actually guide lots of these protocols on what it looks like to have a protocol that can be supported by a qualified custodian like us. And what is actually amazing look like in terms of tools for the custodian, in terms of vesting, how to implement vesting contracts, staking. We actually give lots of advice on how the network should be structured because we've done this so many times. At this point, we support dozens of blockchains in many, many hundreds of assets. And so we've done this over and over and over and over again. So we've seen not all, but a lot of it. And so engage with us early and then um, make sure that you're making the, the custodian and the platform's lives easier by structuring things in a way that makes sense and makes it easy for, for us to do security of your protocol. And this, a while back, it was a new idea that staking keys should be delegated from custody keys and they, you should be able to rotate them on a frequently basis. And, but but they're completely, you can't do anything with it that would lead to asset loss. But that was not obvious three years ago. So a lot of that was campaigning from folks like ourselves saying, hey, structure this in a way that we can segregate the security and that the staking provider doesn't need to run a sensitive key. And that sensitive key can be with a qualified custodian like Anchorage. And the worst case scenario is for this key to be lost is loss of yield and uh, of rewards. And so things like that are very basic and very obvious in hindsight, but we're not really being done. And now obviously there's a lot more knowledge on how to structure this and a lot more examples out there, but we do give a lot of advice on the best way to actually integrate with us. We have a great product team and a great sales team that helps people with this. Taking a step back a bit, Anchorage, I, I think, is now a few hundred people. The most recent funding, I believe, is Series D, which valued Anchorage at, I believe, a few billion, a little over three billion. Obviously, come a very long way since since the initial seed round in 2017. Like, how has the experience changed in terms of fundraising? Fundraising for seed is and, and A's are very different from B's, C's, and D's. Like, what have you guys learned throughout the years, moving through these different stages? Well, there's a lot of learnings. I can, I can take a stab, a stab at it first. But the, the first one is that the environment matters a lot. And so we've raised in different environments. We've raised through bull markets and through bear markets. And the experiences in bear markets, as you'd imagine, are very different than the experiences in bull markets. And so you, you'd expect a little bit more consistency, especially from the crypto native folks. But the reality is that in bull markets, when there's so much capital available, everybody gets to be part of it and look smart making these investments. And really, the, the bear markets, only the contrarians are investing in the people that really have committed capital. So it just makes it a smaller pools of capital, just makes it harder to fill out uh, prompts. And it obviously, it's very different choice from a Series A, which we raised $17 million, $17 million on our Series A. We went straight to A. We knew what we had to build. And so it was a slide deck, Nathan and I in a slide deck. And uh, we ended up raising $17 million to start, start the idea. And then from that moment on, and now we've, we've raised almost $500 million total for, for the company. So pretty different. Every stage has been different. Obviously, the later you are, the more it matters how operational efficient you are, what your numbers are, what the growth profile looks like. And for us, obviously, it mattered deeply how regulated we were and the uh, type of regulation that we had and how unique we were looking at this. And it's to, to a large extent, I think we've always benefited from the fact that we're really the only ones, not just that are founded by two security engineers, but that have done institutional only from day one and not really pivoted or varied from that strategy and asked for permission, not forgiveness. So lots of companies into crypto land 
are really in this ask for forgiveness camp. And so we've only focused on institutional, only focused on doing the right thing from a security perspective, and also from a regulation perspective. So that's also made us a very interesting one from a profile perspective for investors that has got us into a category of N of one. And so that has obviously made fundraising easier uh, modulo the actual ups and downs of the markets themselves. Uh, I don't know, Nathan, do, do you want to weigh in here? Any other insights? So I, I think you I think you covered it really well. I think the thing that we've been blessed with is very crypto convicted investors throughout every stage of investments. And that was certainly true at the beginning where race from Andreessen and Andreessen obviously is inherently long and, and bullish, become almost existentially bullish on on crypto, the crypto funds there. Obviously, bring in blockchain capital where where Derek you were. Don't have to guess that they're that they're bullish. But what was what was nice in in kind of the the later rounds was to find more traditional investors who shared that kind of long term conviction. Bringing in folks like GIC, who kind of sees the long term orientation of crypto, and then in the most latest round, KKR, uh, you know, wanting to make their first, but a, a very significant bet in the crypto space. It's been nice to be able to have just such such great partners there. And so we're really, really blessed by that kind of long-term orientation. Crypto goes through up and down cycles, and it can it can be easy to kind of lose focus when things don't look as bright and sunny as they did during other times. And so it's nice to have stable long-term capital to be able to help us grow what inevitably ends up being a slow build in some ways, but a, a kind of enduring value build long-term. And that's that's important for crypto and especially for the custody business itself. And so that's been that's been a, a real honor. We've talked a lot about, again, the strategy you guys have implemented throughout the years. To the extent that you're comfortable sharing, are there any things you guys have changed your minds on? From a company building perspective, from a, from a strategy perspective, are there anything maybe look back on and, and wish you had done a little differently? It, it could be anything, hiring, scaling, strategy, like anything you wish you knew earlier on or, or wish you could tell yourself earlier on? There's a million of them, right? And I think <laughs> there's, there's a million of them always because you always, I think, you know, engineers like to optimize. And so there's no way that an engineer would say, yeah, I would have done things the exact same way. Even if it is the exact same way, it would probably would have uh, done 2x faster because you, you won't stumble and you won't try things until you actually get them done. There's one for me that is interesting, which is it's very easy, especially in crypto, and I think it, it touches upon something that, we, that we've talked or, or covered, which is the fact that the volatility and there's in crypto, there's a lot of not just volatility, but uneconomic players. So uneconomic players are players that come to um, a capitalistic market and make price distortions appear as if they're just real real pricing or real competitive advantages or, or what have you. So the fact that there was so much capital in the market and it, it created all of these uneconomic players and then you saw many of them. You saw obviously the the Celsius of the world and the BlockFi's of the world, et cetera. And so it, it's been interesting to see and kind of like my beliefs of uh, capitalism and the market and how much the market actually means and the information and how to do mental model updates and update your basin priors based on what you're actually seeing and do pricing and pricing conversations and pricing models based on what we're seeing from competitors when we've already seen like several waves, especially this last one, full of uneconomic players that are just distorting the market and, and for which the market price should actually be used as an example and conviction internally of what are 
product provides, what our differentiation is, why we're a better player, and how, what is really the value of, of, of having a federal bank, et cetera. Having that conviction and actually staying the course has been something that has been hard to do, validating the hindsight, but also would have would have loved to kind of like to a certain extent have made changes to that earlier or not having updated my priors with some of the the markets and business models and things that were happening out there at those times. So that has been a really interesting for me to internalize that what the market is telling you. Yes, it's the market, but it can be highly distorted in some specific sets of conditions. And in crypto, it's already happened uh, several times. So that, that one for me has been kind of like a deep one that doesn't shake your beliefs in capitalistic systems, but it definitely makes you wonder in which conditions are those beliefs actually beliefs that you should follow and in which conditions you shouldn't. Just double clicking on your answer, Diogo, like, I think it's such an important thing because everyone, I think it's hard to ignore in a bull market, the people that take on the most risk or their, their companies or funds or whoever, they benefit. And if you're a company, those metrics matter when you're fundraising, when you're, when you're hiring, when you're for retention, like all these things like momentum, numbers, like that's a real thing. But as you said, at the same time, if you're building for the long term, you have to, it's like, how do you have that balance between having that internal conviction of like, hey, we're not going to do this. This is not sustainable long term versus, hey, like maybe we're falling behind here. Maybe we are behind on a fundamentally important thing or, or service that, that that we should be prioritizing ASAP. So I think it's a hard, like, like I guess my question would be, have you learned to, to be stronger in your convictions or is it more just like being more cognizant of this phenomenon? I think it's being cognizant of the phenomenon allows you to not update your mental model. You wouldn't full update to your mental model. There's some discount factor of, okay, this is happening, but we don't know why it's happening. And you just add a bunch of other factors of, are there other behaviors that point towards this particular company, this particular competitor, this particular market being distorted right now? As in, what is the quality of the team? What is the quality of the risk management? When you meet them, do they seem like people that actually really have their stuff tied down together? And as a partner, are they a good partner? So those things, I think to a certain extent, in these bull markets, there were yellow flags on many of these businesses in many of these pricing models, et cetera, that you end up ignoring because the market is telling you one thing and revenue is telling you another thing and all these reports that they have public look really good and they might look better than yours. And so you end up updating these models exactly to what they are versus giving them discounts. And so I think the learning is you really have to have this weighted moving average where you have to update your mental models. You can't get stuck in the past. You can't have convictions that are unrealistic, but you also can't update your mental models all the way and immediately and you have to consider if there are any, actively consider any yellow flags or red flags that are being pointed towards the reasons why these things are happening are not because the market is commanding, but because there's a new way, an economic market in, in, or actor in the space that is just distorting everything. So just being cognizant of that and doing a waiting moving average, I think it's kind of like my mental model now of how I have to do my priors and try to kind of like move along in terms of the business until I actually make decisions that change something meaningfully. Pricing or pricing model or new businesses to go into or, or what have you. Nathan, anything on your end that you want to mention in terms of things you wish you knew or had told yourself earlier on? Yeah, I mean, I think Diogo's answer certainly on kind of market market disruptions is is well timed and is is one of our bigger bigger kind of lessons over the last several years. I think the the one that I would add, which I'm almost skeptical to say it because it's so obvious. I think I've heard it on a dozen, maybe two dozen podcasts, 
so I'll, I'll add to the noise here, which is the value of good people. There can be a, you know, you don't really get it until you have worked with truly incredible people, but there are certain people in certain roles that can just really change the trajectory of the company. And it's a, a night and day difference from before they're in the role to after they're in the role. And so that's that focus on in, incredible folks on the team ends up being essential. But it's very hard as a founder if you've never managed the role or the department to even be able to assess what good is. And so at some level, this just ends up being something that you have to you have to learn by experimentation. I'm almost, almost skeptical of even saying it because I, I know that it's so hard for entrepreneurs in the position to, to internalize, but the effect of it is huge. It's especially true, oddly enough, within crypto because there basically are no straightforward business units or functions within a business within the crypto landscape. So your your finance team has to be world-class, your compliance team has to be world-class, your legal team has to be world-class, your product team has to be world-class. And so you, you basically have to build a team of all-stars at your company, even in the areas that seem like good enough could be good enough. And so that's been one of the interesting things. The great thing is, is once you figure that out and you start hiring great people, then you as the executive of the company get to be surrounded by wonderful people all the time. So actually like the, the quality of your life improves because you get to you get to be with such smart people all around you. But the takeaway there is, man, wouldn't have been easier if we had done that earlier. And, you know, you can, you can never change the path, but that's what I would want to convey to people is, like, you know, hire good early, as early as you can. Evergreen philosophy. Mm -hmm. Last set of questions, guys. Crypto funds that you guys have seen and dealt with and, and, and been partners with tens, probably hundreds of, of crypto funds at this point. Like, I think there's one recent trend of this is, again, especially true of the larger funds of, of them building out engineering teams in-house, whether it's for research or, or for experimentation or things like staking or, or DeFi activity in-house. What do you guys think of this trend broadly? Yeah, well, it's it's definitely many, many hundreds. So we've seen this. Um, and by the way, it's actually pretty percentage-wise is the percentage of crypto funds that actually have their own internal engineering team is actually really low. It, they are the biggest and they are the people, the ones that people hear about the most, of course, and the biggest brands that do have it. But it's really still percentage-wise is not, it's not a majority. And I would probably say it's less than 20% of crypto funds, maybe even less than 10% by um, absolute number, maybe not by AUM, but definitely by absolute number. I think it makes sense, mostly because crypto is such a fast-moving place and it has such a fast moving pace and there are thousands of different protocols and all these investors by definition have different takes because if they all have the same take they're basically clones of one another and so if they have different takes from each other it means that they want to invest efforts into furthering the community that they're investing in and so that makes a lot of sense in a way that just normal traditional vc does make a lot of sense for a vc to just hire a bunch of engineers to help your company do a b and c there's some vcs that kind of like follow sort of that model but in crypto it makes a lot more sense because it's an open source type of uh, contribution and so the commuter matters and having a big name vc contributing and participating and using their marketing arm to uplift the community makes a lot of sense in another way there's lots of things that unfortunately folks like ourselves just can't keep up with there are thousands of protocols. We don't have tens of thousands of engineers to support all these protocols. The community will always develop more code and faster than what Anchorage can keep up with. And it's very hard to invert that type of relationship. And so by definition, there will be many long tail assets and communities and types of uh, behaviors that we weren't really able to support, either because of um, 
hardness of technical implementation in terms of uh, we don't have enough resources or just haven't gone to it yet, or even from a regulatory perspective, it's not something that is clear yet that we can do or that they can do. And so that also kind of puts a little bit of kibosh on, on some of these types of uh, types of behaviors. Uh, and so it makes sense, at least over the short to medium term, that this type of internal team for the largest protocols that have the largest amounts of influence on the communities and that have the most pressure from their protocols that they invest in and actively participating in staking and doing governance and voting and actively participating in the communities in a way that just traditional VC doesn't have. So it makes sense that that will be the case. I do think that it will always be kind of like this divergence and then convergence and divergence and convergence. And then the divergence will get smaller and smaller as time goes on in blockchain, I believe, in terms of like layer ones. There will be a point in which potentially, and this is, by the way, six years of somewhat proven me wrong, which is there will be a a time in which layer ones will kind of start of uh, petering out in terms of new, completely different layer ones coming to market. And even if there's new ones coming out, I think we've we've already have found, have explored really the the boundaries of decentralization and centralization and performance and all of these other things. And we've sort of created and coalesced around a few kind of mechanisms and a few kind of like good abstractions and API abstractions that allow folks like ourselves to, when we support one thing, we support many things. I think a canonical example of that is, of course, ERC-20 tokens. It's very fast, frankly, support on ERC-20 token. So as long as it goes through our asset support framework and there's interested uh, parties that want to custody it and stake it and do governance or participate with it, we can very quickly support that. But obviously, like that doesn't work yet across multiple chains, but there's lots of projects trying to reduce the divergence and the amount of time that it takes to support this, and there will be convergence at some point. So short and medium term makes a lot of sense over the long term. I think maybe some of them will still keep them, but I think it will make less sense because platforms like us will have an easier time catching up with the big winners and the big types of projects and buckets of uh, centralization to decentralization and transaction model and smart contract language, et cetera, et cetera. And I think at some point that has to converge, but maybe not. Really thoughtful answer. Certainly will be interesting to to see how crypto funds innovate and push the ball forward themselves. Two questions left. Like early on in Dakers history, let's call it seed series A in the first two years, like how did investors and VCs actually help Anchorage? I think there's a lot of jokes and Twitter jokes about like, okay, VCs adding value and and whatever. But there are, I, I would assume, things that and, and I and I know that VCs actually do for companies at the earliest stage, whether it's product feedback or some help with hiring or introductions to teams. I'm curious if there's any specific actions or, or kinds of behaviors that, that you guys found actually moved the needle early on. So a couple a couple ideas there. I think the one of the things that, say, our, our lead investor of our, our Series A, which was Andreessen, is kind of famous for is this a kind of operating model where they can fill in, especially for early stage companies to help in various areas, whether that's PR, marketing, branding, recruiting. And so I know they kind of several points kind of early in the initiation stages of Anchorage, they were helping us with uh, various aspects of that, whether that's like HR policies, and even just kind of a hearing ear to ask, you know, like, hey, how do, what do you think about this? What do you think about this? Is this a good policy? Is this a good kind of way to think about things? That ended up being helpful. And then Pretty significantly, I'd say, in exec recruiting early on, thinking about who do we bring in as our general counsel, who do we bring in as our sales lead, we end up really getting a significant amount of help there, whether that was kind of understanding what good looks like in these roles uh, from talking to others in the portfolio, 
that ended up being pretty helpful to us early on. Inevitably, you must own these efforts yourself eventually. Uh, so there's kind of this early stage where you're just kind of in germination where it doesn't, you don't necessarily have that role yet. And so it can be, it can be helpful to rely on that externally. But of course, over time, you must, you must bring it internal. And, and so that's kind of helpful early on. The other one I would say just generally is because venture capitalists get to see so much of the landscape, there's a, a certain level of synthesis that they're able to do, which is to say, what is going on in the market? What are the trends that they're seeing? Uh, so being kind of a, a listening ear, someone to bounce ideas off of. And um, I don't know, Derek, if you were if you were trying to go in this direction, but I, I would say that I actually found you quite helpful, specifically with that kind of capability to synthesize what was going on in the market, talk about new opportunities and whether those were going to be something that was viable, just uh, being able to hear use cases that folks were seeing sit, VCs end up sitting in a different spot within the ecosystem. And so they inherently get to see more than anyone at a at a company does. Uh, and so that that synthesis of trends ended up being pretty helpful and, and meaningful to me. I'm sure you have stuff to add here too. So what do you think on this question about VC helpfulness? Yeah, I think the biggest factor for getting help from your investors is the entrepreneur, period. The venture investors will give you as much as you requested. So it's actually on you to extract value more than it's on them to provide it. And maybe it shouldn't be this way, but that's just the reality of it. You get out of it what you ask. So you have to be the one that is very structured, very methodical, very targeted in your requests about specific introduction to this particular person because of this reason with this blurb in, in this kind of angle. That's what you need to do. Whenever you send out an investor update and you just say, hey, I'm hiring engineers. If you know engineers, send them here. That's just useless. It's just absolutely a waste of everybody's time because nobody's ever going to do it. There's 100, 200 portfolio companies that they have. And how are they going to allocate across all those portfolio companies? And same things for intro. Oh, an intro to company X on an investor update when you're sending it to 200 investors. That's going to be useless. It's going to be you know this uh, problem of like nobody's going to help you because everybody thinks everybody else is going to help you or it's not their responsibility to do so. So VCs give you what you actually request out of them. And then the other advice is that you have to go in really knowing who you're bringing on board and what's their specific superpower and value add. I think for us, for example, we have GIC on the cap table and they led our CBC and they have helped tremendously with uh, Singapore. We have a regulated entity in Singapore and introductions to folks on the ground and um, opening accounts and giving us references to local clients that put GIC as like the example of financial institution and what they do is like they're well respected. So things like that are extremely helpful. And we knew that up front and we knew that we wanted to go to APAC and we knew that Singapore was going to be kind of like our stepping stone. So it just made a lot of sense for them to be on the cap table at that point because they were going to use their leverage to, to really help Anchor succeed. So we already went into the fundraising knowing the thing that we're going to get out of them. We weren't going into it believing that GIC was somehow going to review our product and give us design feedback, right? That, that was not, not what we we're going to do. We wanted this specific thing that we couldn't get by ourselves from that particular investor. And that has been the case for every single one of, uh, of the venture rounds and the leads that, that we were part of. So I, my, two, my two pieces of advice is you get out of it what you put in and what you request, and you have to choose people up front, not for being generalists that are going to help you build a business, but because you, they have some superpower that you're going to be able to tap into. I think that's such an important point. You, you get out of it what you ask for from, for an entrepreneur. Like tactically, 
how does an entrepreneur actually do that? Is it just maybe having recurring catch-ups where you can get super specific and in the weeds? Is it sending very specific requests as opposed to general requests to a group? Like, how do you actually, I'm sure there's like some finesse to this. It's not just like hustling a lot and asking for a lot of help. Like, how do you actually get the most out of your cap table? Yeah. So, and, and by the way, for knowing what to do and doing it, I think are two worlds apart here. And I think it's obvious what are the things that you should do once you hear them. It's just, I know very few people that actually do it effectively. But number one, uh, you should have an air table with every single one of your investors, which is step number one that people usually don't. Number two, you have to categorize them by things that they do and help that they have. I know there's all these like tools to do it and LinkedIn imports and follow their Twitter for do an AI search for tags of things that they talk about, whatever. Tag them somehow. And you have an air table and with tags. And then now what you have too is you have last time contacted. And you make sure that you always have, you know, every six months cadence where you're actually contacting them with a specific request and you're running your round robin to the people that are actually useful. So you're not always relying on the same person over and over again. You're kind of like distributing the requests across the village and of course ranking higher people that you have better relationships with and have been more useful in the past and ranking lower people that haven't really followed through or what have you, but always kind of like following through there. So now you have a list of all of them with their particular superpowers or things that they're good at and the last time you contacted them. And then for some specific like super connected people, depending on the leverage that you have and how you well you know them, you can actually ask for LinkedIn exports, CSVs, and they'll export the CSV. And then you kind of like import to your own database. And I've seen companies that actually have these internal tools that they build with our, which are introduction tools. They basically import all of the LinkedIn's of every single investors, and then they know exactly who the best introduction is in the direct hops and how many people are between me and the CEO of uh, BlackRock, whatever. And so I know who are all the people that can introduce me to the CEO of BlackRock, and I can actually use multiple of them and the one that has the closest relationship. And so I can specifically go to them and say, hey, I know you know the CEO of BlackRock and that you have known them from X, Y, and Z. This is what we're trying to do. This is the blurb. We'd love for an intro. Let me know if you can if you can do this. And you make it explicit that it's on them and that you're waiting for them to do this and that you are not diluting it. No, it's on you. It's this task. is the task that I want you to do it for me. And then finally is the component of really making sure that you have high actionability of something that they can do. And I think the most important thing is that you have somehow, somehow, you have to turn yourself from a liability to an asset. Introductions are very easy to do when you are an asset, when you're a successful company, when you're doing well, when you are thoughtful and a great entrepreneur and something and someone that won't be an embarrassing that introduction. You have two orders of magnitude more likelihood of these introductions actually being done and people actually doing work for you because people are proud of you, proud of being an investor. So you are an asset. The problem is that very early on, and depending on how you run your company and how it's doing, you're actually a liability, right? They're doing you a favor versus you doing them a favor because they are being recognized on the other side as introducing incredible entrepreneurs to them. So this transition is the most important transition that you can try to do is how do you turn yourself from a liability to an asset so that all these introductions get towards magnitude easier and all of these favors actually are, are really favors. So that's a harder thing to do, but ultimately the highest leverage thing that you can. I'm learning a lot from talking to both of you about company building, about tactics. Would love to keep the conversation going, but want to be respectful of your time. And, and we've covered a lot of ground already. So Nathan, Diego, really appreciate both of you coming on and, and chatting with me today. Thank you for having us. Thanks, Derek.